Greetings and welcome to Lobes and Robes, How Neuroscience Can Change the World. This podcast is sponsored by the American University Center for Neuroscience and Behavior and explores the links between neuroscience and key policy questions today. I'm Susan Carl, a professor of law at American University Washington College of Law, and I will help lead discussions throughout our series, along with Dr. Terry Davidson, Director of the Center for Neuroscience and Behavior at American University and a distinguished professor of neuroscience here. This podcast is for anyone interested in how scientific discovery can make the world a better place. Thanks for listening. Hi, everybody. Today, we're going to talk about the intersection between neuroscience and anti-discrimination law. And I'm Susan, and I'm interested in anti-discrimination law. And Terry Davidson, Dr. Davidson, is here as the expert neuroscience scientist in the room. We're going to um, sort of share our perspectives and see if we can find some areas of agreement, and we'll probably have some areas in which we see things differently. Well, I can start, by, Susan, by saying I think that the goals of law and goals of policy and goals of neuroscience, broadly defined, are very similar. And that is, many of us working in these fields, we have an objective or an aim of trying to make the world a better place, try to solve problems that maybe face or reduce uh, human well-being and uh, challenge uh, quality of life. But we go at it from very different perspectives. Our languages are different, our cultures are different, and the strategies that we use are different. But nonetheless, we still have these shared aims. And so hopefully what we can do a little bit today is talk about things that will help us advance the aims together and also maybe look at some things that could be obstacles that could be uh, hindering our ability to do that. I think maybe a good place to start might be, what do you think about this uh, should I say, the common ways that neuroscience, policy, and law can work together? I see law and neuroscience as two very different sort of subfields of human activity. So law is a cultural practice. And yes, science is also a cultural practice. But the fact that they don't neatly overlay over each other doesn't bother me a bit. I think a lot of the problems with the lack of overlay between law and neuroscience are not specific to neuroscience, but they're specific to any kind of scientific evidence and the way that it can be used in law. I think how neuroscience ends up getting used in individual cases, which is something I know you're really interested in and we can talk about, that is a different question from questions about how the findings of neuroscience can be used in the anti-discrimination project in order to figure out interventions that reduce discrimination or that that help with the kinds of biases that are well proven to exist in human thinking. So I would sort of separate out using neuroscience in particular lawsuits, which is not what I'm interested in, from using neuroscience as a, in order to inform policy. I'd love to talk about both areas. I'm really not that interested either. I think it's a kind of interesting prospect if neuroscience data could become, how should I say, we could become competent enough that we could explain behaviors with it 
in ways that might be useful in a court of law. But that's not actually where I'm interested either. I'm interested in trying to understand the function of the brain. And there are many different kinds of things. My particular area is um, I, I study memory. I study uh, control of food intake. And when we start moving into things like discrimination and its various varieties, we're get working into some concepts that are, you know, memory can be a very complicated concept. But if we looked at racism, for example, that's even sometimes very difficult to define. I mean, I'm interested in trying to understand those brain areas. But one of the things uh, that underlie memory and, and various kinds of psychological functions but one of the things I'm concerned about is using neuroscience that is not yet developed and trying to explain things with principles. Sometimes, I, th I think I've mentioned to you once before that I think there are some folks in the literature that will use the trappings of neuroscience to try to make their arguments that are not neuroscientific more compelling. And that can be problematic. That's one of the things that if we talk about how to solve these kind of broader legal uh, and social problems. We have to know what the limits of neuroscience are, perhaps how do we judge whether or not uh, anyone has maybe gone beyond those limits. Essentially, you have to be very careful about how the generalizations you make about any kind of data that comes from neuroscience or any kind of science. You have to be very careful. What does it really apply to? What is it being measured, valid, the validity of the measure? And also, what is the definition? How, is the thing that you're trying to study well enough defined that you might be able to locate it within a particular brain area? If it's not well defined, then it, how would you locate something that's not well defined? Okay, so I guess one of the things for lay people, since there is a lot of literature that relies on fMRI imaging and, and draws conclusions, and I think I've learned from you that some of that maybe is well accepted, but some of it is not. And it's very hard for somebody who's not trained in the area to be able to distinguish what's well accepted from what's not. And you know, if we start talking about admitting evidence in court under the current legal standard, which is called the Daubert standard, you know, you just need to show that there is some school of thought that accepts the methodology. And so it sounds like there are, you know, there are a lot of people who are using this methodology and sometimes it's okay and sometimes it's not. And it's very hard to tell legitimate uses from illegitimate uses. Yeah. So one of the things I would point out is that so social behavior is one of the most complex things. I don't want to discourage people from trying to use neuroscience techniques to understand them. I certainly want to point out that I think that there are some you know, you have to start somewhere in any kind of project. And this is a very complex uh, phenomenon, uh, the social behavior, especially if we start talking about things that are related to discrimination in terms of social discrimination or uh, acting differently, as you wrote uh, so eloquently about in one of your papers. You have to start somewhere. But again, it's very complicated. So you're going to have some steps that are, when you're first starting out, when you're first learning how to walk, you sometimes misstep. And there have been missteps in all kinds of science. So I don't want to be too critical of any one branch because I think there are a lot of people who are doing the best they can. And as they start working on things, trying to understand it, everyone in science does this. We see some of the mistakes we've made or some of the misinterpretations we've made, and then we try to correct it. In social neuroscience, it's a, very, it's a, a field that's working with a very complex phenomenon, and you're going to have missteps at any time based on how complex uh, the thing is that you're studying. So maybe you'll point out some of the missteps. Maybe we could go to this question about bias. Hey, can I ask you a question first, though? 
So one of the things that seems particularly social neuroscience, although there are some clinical neuroscience uh, folks, the concept of the unconscious. I noticed that in your paper, you referred to unconscious a lot, unconscious things that are going on that can control people's behavior. And so when we talk about implicit bias, lots of times that's linked to unconscious mental processes. And I wonder if you could explain what that concept means to you. I wrote a little piece about this comparing the way that I understand that scientists talk about processes that we are not aware of, like you know, the processes underlying sight. All we know is we see things and we can't help but see them, but we have no idea what's happening to cause that to happen. So, and then sort of comparing that to the Freudian notion of the unconscious, you know, which is totally discredited, of course. It's a cultural idea and sort of active forces that are, you know, coming from somewhere in the psyche that are causing people to behave in certain ways that are connected to their history and their, you know, their personal experiences. So just sort of talking about the difference between those two things. But so to me, unconscious is anything that one is not aware of. Right. And so then that's where you get to this notion of unconscious bias, meaning that nobody is thinking that they feel differently about members of a certain subgroup, but you can see by studying carefully their actions that they are, that their brain at some level that they're not aware of is sort of drawing distinctions in a way that's pernicious to some subgroups. Things that are unconscious. If I asked you now, what is your mother's maiden name? That wasn't in your conscious thought. It wasn't in your memory uh, that you could access easily. You had to go get it from somewhere. And so in that sense, unconscious is something or not conscious, there's different names for it, right, is something that uh, clearly people have it. And, and we've known about those processes. I think sometimes, though, it, what is more complicated or difficult to understand, or at least we need to make the distinction, and that is unconscious memories or unconscious thoughts, are, those are different than, say, unconscious motivations. If uh, a person has a, a particular motive, if it's unconscious, that's a Freudian. I think that's where the Freudian slips come in. So many, many things are happening that we're not conscious of, but are those things really driving our behavior? That's a kind of important question uh, for neuroscientists and legal folks for, for people in general. So what about the where? So the other, I guess my coming to social neuroscience came through behavioral economics and the idea of the type one and type two systems that Daniel Kahneman and others talked about, that our brain you know, is irrational in a whole host of ways, that it exhibits all kinds of bias and it makes assumptions that are irrational, that seem to be adaptive in some situations, but in other situations get us in trouble. So to me, instead of like using a term like racism, which is so deeply charged and so full of history and a moral judgment and all of that, I think this, this notion of irrational bias might be very helpful. If we can measure all kinds of ways that we irrational about what we'll sell, right? If we value it more if we own it than if we have to go out and buy it. And, you know, there are hundreds of these kinds of irrational biases that have been well-documented by social psychologists and behavioral ec economists. So 
it just makes sense that there's a, one of those biases is, is a bias towards people who we perceive as, you know, who are socially constructed as inferior or perceived as different from oneself. And that maybe that that bias has real repercussions that explain the persistence of discrimination, even though everybody's trying their best to not be discriminatory. I think a distinction I'd like to make, though, is that a lot of the concepts that you're talking about, and these are of interest to neuroscientists, there's no doubt about it, but a lot of those ideas have been based on psychology. They've come from psychology, and for the most part, they haven't been based on looking at the brain. They've been looking at how people behave under particular circumstances, under particular conditions, trying to identify, say, variables that produce or stimuli that produce a particular kind of behavior, outcome, that kind of thing. And what's going on in the brain, that's happening in the middle, so to speak. And, and what parts of the brain or what processes of the brain are going on, those are neuroscience questions. And sometimes I think that people will confuse neuroscience with psychology. I believe that uh, important questions in psychology important, and psychologists identify a very important phenomenon, but at the level of analysis, the ability of neuroscientists to describe how the brain can do those things, sometimes uh, we can't do it. In other words, it's uh, the states aren't really well enough to find for ourselves, or we don't know yet enough about the brain that we can provide, how should I say, what processes or what uh, information about what processes or structures are, are uh, involved in those psychological constructs. So here's the question. I totally understand that there's a field called psychology and a field called social psychology and a separate field that's neuroscience. But don't we want them to meet? I mean, isn't it interesting to try to figure out the intersection there instead of having two very siloed fields? And it seems to me that some of these people who may be, you know, not with very much expertise have, are using some of the techniques of studying brains, even though they're really more social psychologists that that's what they're trying to do, and maybe they're not doing a very good job of it, but it would seem helpful, perhaps, or maybe it's not helpful yet, to try to knit them. I would challenge the idea that they're not doing a very good job of it. But what I said before is that these are very complex phenomena. And I think that if, if we look at irrational bias, right, we need to define that. What is that? And I think even within the psychological field, there's going to be different interpretations of what that means. It's not that they're not important, but people are they're trying to do the best they can about phenomenons that are incompletely understood. And what we want to be able to do to increase our understanding, and then perhaps once we really have defined a concept in ways that we can measure it and we're confident that we're measuring validity or validly measuring it, that's when we can start looking for brain substrates. But it seems to me it's much more difficult if the concepts themselves are not very well defined than to try to find the brain is a very complex place as well, to try to find where those things are, how they're operating in the brain. So it's not so much that we, they should be separated, right? It's just that it takes time, I think, to be able to, we come at things from different ways. And so I, before I can interpret a psychological phenomena into a physiological one or a neural one, I have to know what the psychological phenomena is. I think the behavioral economists are really have a handle on what irrational bias is. So that I'm not worried about. So an example would be, say, having sitting on a, a pot of money 
And if you took a certain action, you'd end up with more money than what you have. And because of these weird biases, you don't do the thing that's sort of economically maximizing, right? And so a lot of their experiments are based on small amounts of money and seeing if people you know, do the thing, optimize their economic well-being. And of course, the world is far more complicated than that, but it at least allows them to identify these biases. You know, and one is like you, people would rather make less money, but not give, you know, perform exchanges without group members, right? That's an example of an irrational bias. And everybody would say, yes, you know, that group is acting in a way that's biased and irrational. Or another example would be, not hiring the best qualified person for the job, right? Assuming that you could really quantify who's most qualified. I think that part's okay. I see what you're saying about the physiology not being well understood. I think I disagree with you. And the reason I disagree is, so what you've described are behavioral phenomena, right? So we know what this output is and we kind of know under what environmental circumstances they occur. But what do we know about the process that underlies those behavioral outputs. There are also psychology questions because we can have processes that are not yet tied to uh, the brain, but which can certainly instruct people who study the brain where to look for processes or what the brain should be doing. But the example that you gave, those are behavioral outputs. I agree with you. I think that they've been very well specified, but it's a different question than to say, okay, what are the processes that produce those? And how do we go about then altering those processes if that's what we want to be able to do? It is really fascinating to start asking the question of what is happening in the brain that leads to those results? And I agree with you that we have no idea. I certainly have no idea, and I haven't seen any literature that seemed very convincing at all about it. But at least to start that inquiry seems important. And I agree with you, lots of missteps, lots of dumb ideas are going to be out there. But it would be so helpful to the world to figure out interventions. My reading of the literature, and I've been trying to stay on top of it as much as I can, is that there are some interventions that do help somewhat, right? So if a person who's making a big decision that may have discriminatory results is reminded right at the moment of the decision that there is this tendency towards implicit bias, their decisions will be less biased. It doesn't seem like this bias training and all that, it doesn't seem to last very long. It doesn't work very well for very long. But if you can set up a decision-making system so that there is a reminder right at the moment of decision, it helps. And why it helps, who knows? It probably has a lot to do with memory and all kinds of complicated things that you understand and I don't. That seems to me to have been a helpful kind of place, a little step, a little bit of progress that could help the world. I agree with you. I'm not sure that you need a neuroscientist to identify those things. In other words, those are things that a person who studies behavior would be able to study on their own without any a neuroscientist. What a neuroscientist, I think sometimes as I read the literature, neuroscientists and brain scientists have done some extraordinary things. I mean, recently you probably saw where people who have had no sight can have a computer chip with connected to a type of camera and they can regain at least rudimentary sight. 
and obviously the prosthetic devices and so on that uh, getting motor control basically by having brain connected to machines. These are things that are fantastic and great, things that are very helpful to people. But it doesn't mean that neuroscientists can tackle everything yet. You're absolutely right that people have had many missteps in any, uh, all types of science. And so we've got to keep trying to do these things. But again, it's very important to keep in mind what we should have confidence in, in terms of what we know, and what are the things that are more questionable, the things that we don't have as much confidence, although we may have, we may have some hope that uh, the way we're looking at a particular problem is the right way. I think we agree on that. The problem is, and this goes to one of the big lessons that I got out of this season, especially Alita Anderson's episode, that just because it's published in a reputable peer-reviewed journal doesn't mean that we should necessarily believe it as a lay person. You know, we shouldn't necessarily give all that authority to some of these, you know, ventures in studying brain processes. I think COVID was a, is an interesting example. And that was people have complained a lot about Dr. Fauci initially saying that you don't need to wear masks. And then, you know, a month or so later, he said, well, no, everyone should wear masks. And at that point, it's kind of like, well, what's wrong with the science? And the, the fact of the matter is, is that basically a, a new strain of coronavirus and most of these kinds of strains, or at least many of them, the symptoms, you don't see transmission of the disease until the symptoms emerge. And what was discovered, right, was, again, this is through just getting more knowledge and adding to what you know. And sometimes when you add to what you know, it makes you change your mind about what you thought you knew before. No one really made a mistake. Nobody, this is, you just do the best you can with the information you have, and you try to get more information to make that, your conclusions more sound. And so once he found out that you could transmit this disease, even when you're not showing symptoms, that meant that everybody had to wear a mask because a person could you know, you'd be in contact with somebody who's not showing the disease at all, but they still can transmit it to you. So those are just things, science is like that. And sometimes I think we place too much emphasis on what we might call a fact. But basically what scientists do is we try to increase the quality of our knowledge or the confidence in what we know as best we can. And we're not going to be dogmatic. I think this is a common thing for scientists to believe. You don't want to be dogmatic about any one thing, because if you start becoming dogmatic, then you're not open to data that suggests you might be wrong. And I think a big problem in the whole sort of you know anti-science reaction to the COVID crisis is that we have so many members of our society who aren't trained in scientific methods, so they don't understand that that facts change and that, you know, best knowledge is going to be an evolving thing and that there's nothing wrong with the fact that the best advice changes over time because that's all part of sort of the contestation that's part of getting at better scientific knowledge. But so many people just don't understand that because maybe they were not exposed to it in their own educational experiences. And then the demagogues can exploit it for very, you know, in the separate sphere of cultural practice and politics ends up being exploited for the, the kinds of, you know, really tragic ends that we saw with COVID and the anti-vax movement and the anti-mask movement. So hopefully something that we're just making a little dent in is having this podcast so that we can talk across these disciplinary 
silos and and have conversations like we're having today so that we can understand each other better. And I think you and I, when we started off this discussion, we were kind of in two different places, but we keep getting to sort of pretty much the same place as we talk. That's a good thing. Again, I believe our goals are common, but our ways of of approaching or trying to solve the problems that our individual fields or disciplines uh, have to deal with, they're just different. Doesn't mean that we, yeah, there are gaps between us and hopefully we can fill some of those gaps. And by doing that, basically come up with better ways to solve problems or improve the quality of life. Maybe we uh, should talk a little bit more about the concept of irrational bias. Now, one of the things I argue is that the concept itself at this point in time I think it's, it could be a very good concept, it's, but it's coming from behavior. It doesn't necessarily rely on neuroscience. But there does seem to be some folks that are trying to translate it into uh, a brain function. Is that your um, trying to identify brain functions with this kind of irrational bias? Although your approach, quite often, they'll try to identify it with a specific type of irrational bias for racism, for example, or sexism or anti-Semitism. I'm wondering what you think about those kinds of things. I guess my question to you is another definitional one is what do you mean by a brain function? That's a very interesting thing because quite often I'll see in papers and people will say when a person is shows a bias, they'll say the brain is biased or they'll say the brain does this or the brain does that, right? It's the person that's doing that. And the brain does everything. So just by, by pointing out one thing that, you know, it's not really informative about anything. So the question is, how do we make it more informative? So one of the things that I got out of the project that you have commented on in the past was to sort of try to detach the concept of bias from all of the moral judgment about people and and all of the words like racism, sexism, anti-Semitism, homophobia, all of those things. Just for Not that those things don't really matter, that we have to fight them, but just for the purposes of trying to understand more. To just say, let's just talk about bias in the selection of human beings the same way as we talk about bias in whether to hang on to goods or sell them or buy goods or sell. Just like it's one more of these sort of irrational type one processes that happens, that probably happens for reasons that were adaptive at some point. And I know you're not a big evolutionary biology person, and I'm not either. Let me put it this way. I certainly believe in evolution, but I don't necessarily think that we can account for, how should I say, explain every process in a way that is scientifically verifiable based on evolutionary principles. But I do think there might be something to the idea that, you know, along with all these other irrational behaviors that we exhibit, like, you know, holding on to what we've got, even if something else is more valuable, you know, not wanting to trade it, like that probably made sense at some point in the long evolution of human beings. And in the same way, sort of preferring people who you could tell were part of your group probably made sense in this very long evolutionary trajectory. And so some of that seems somehow to be in the brain. You know, I couldn't care less where or why, but some people are very interested in those questions. But if we know that that's happening, then I think it actually thought about the right way, would decouple discrimination from all of those horrible moral words that talk about people being very immoral. That could happen too. And certainly we've seen a lot of it in our world, you know, this horrible out and out expressed racism. We've seen a lot of that in the last half decade. What If we think about it 
Instead, it's something that happens to everybody and that is the product of a type one process in the brain. And there are ways to get to a type two kind of way of thinking about things. In other words, to be more rational and not let those irrational, quick decisions affect outcomes. You know, that that's a helpful new idea to anti-discrimination law. So you mentioned the notion of you know dividing up the money in different ways. Do you think that every type of discrimination or every type of rational bias is it the same underlying mechanism for everything? So if we take racism, the output is can certainly be way more harmful than if uh, I you know decide not to give money to somebody uh, as much as uh, uh, to myself. That kind of thing even though it could cost me. The thing called delayed discounting, where people, it's irrational. Some people will not delay a reward. They'll take a small reward rather than a much larger uh, delayed reward, which is kind of irrational. That's an example. Yeah. One of many, of hundreds of different you know, biases with different names. Yeah. So part of the problem is then how do we divide up those things, especially if we're going to try to understand the processes underlie them, and also look at how the brain, that's a, when I say brain function, what I'm talking about a brain function is that we often talk about structure function relationships in neuroscience. That is, we look at a particular brain structure and we ask well, how is it involved in a particular behavioral function, whether that's memory or eating or, in this case, perhaps irrational bias. So that's what I mean by, by function. The thing is, though, you have to have a pretty good understanding of what the function is. And I'm coming back to that again. Is a rational bias if it's several different things, right? Or if it can be, again, we're talking about discounting in terms of not being able to wait for a larger reward or, you know, expression of sexism or anti-Semitism in some kind of, you know, overt behavior. Those are really important questions to sort out. And then we can take those other things, those discrimination things and the things that have been the focus of anti-discrimination and we can say, well, are they related to anger? Are they related to fear? Are they related to hate? Are they related to arrogance? Are they related to personal insecurity? I mean, a whole list of things. And you might expect that each of those things that they could be related to are also going to involve different brain circuits, different brain functions. And so it's not so much that we can't do it, but it's also, we got to make sure we're not oversimplifying. So as an anti-discrimination scholar, I think about this field in a really different way than you do. So let me just try and share sort of the broad picture of what I, how I think about it and see how it maps onto what you're talking about. So, you know, we know that discrimination occurs for a whole lot of reasons. And we have this concept that, of course, there are instances of prejudice. People prefer one person over another, and they're sort of fairly harmless. But then some of them become institutionalized. And so... It, structures are built in society that institutionalize these. And so there are these big forces that are working to exclude people and to make their opportunities in life much less promising than for others. And that's a combination of cultural practices and a lot about law. You know, law sort of freezes these and perpetuates them and, and keeps them static and powerful. So we know all of that. We don't know, but we're, we're working on it. You know, we're trying, people are trying to think that stuff through and discover what is the history? Where do these institutions come from? What about them perpetuates uh, subordination of uh, traditional outsiders? Lots and lots and lots and lots of work on that. 
trying to identify practices, trying to dismantle them. And that's been going on for a very long time with some results. And of course, we know there's lots of the, the isms, the racism, the sexism, and all of that. But what I think the implicit bias stuff just answers this one kind of small question, but really important one, which is even when you've audited your institutions and you've tried your darndest to get rid of all of the structural impediments and to identify the practices, what is happening that is keeping people out because of traditional institutional perpetuation of subordination, even if you do all that. And I've certainly seen this happen in a number of institutions I've been associated with. You can do all that and you can still end up with these results with people who are so well-meaning and trying so hard to do the right thing. You can still end up with these results that are irrational and suboptimal. And then the question is, how did that happen? How can that still be happening? And what implicit bias does is say, you know, at this micro level where people are making small decisions, which when they add up, end up becoming very important to a person's life prospects. At that level, there is still something going on that in which the human brain is perpetuating social meanings that we're trying to get rid of. And so it's just to say, it's not, I don't think anybody says that understanding implicit bias means that that is the answer to all of the horrible things that go along with racism, sexism, subordination, violence, you know, persecuting outgroups. No one is saying that, I don't think. And anger and all of those other emotions. Like, it's not really about all of that. It's just about how without anger, without any animus towards persons who are different, it is still possible that suboptimal decisions get made that seem to have something to do with whatever, with race or sex or religion or, you know, whatever the factor you're setting is. Like, how does that happen when people aren't, they're not upset, they're not seething with rage. They don't, you know, all of those horrible emotions don't seem to be what's motivating them. Yet still, decisions get made that on review didn't make sense. You know, we should write a book if we have the answer to that question. One of the things, I guess, about this concept of implicit bias has to do with what it's actually measuring. And so I know that there, so at one level you're saying there's implicit bias, and I understand what that means in the sense that we can be biased without knowing about it, without, and we can engage in behaviors without thinking whether it's important to call this unconscious or not. It doesn't seem to be very important to me, but there, nonetheless, it's still a, a case where people make uh, decisions that can be bad for themselves, much less bad for other people. These are potentially based on, on biases. When it comes to things like discrimination, though, people are trying to measure implicit bias, right? And then what they're trying to base conclusions on the outcomes of, the, of these tests. So is there a lot of confidence in those measures in, in terms of uh, whether or not they're tapping onto this thing that, that uh, is so important? So I actually tried to research that because you had asked me beforehand to sort of look into this question about whether implicit bias testing is being used to prove invidious discrimination. I could not find any. And I asked my research assistants to look as well. And we did not find any cases like that, which doesn't mean they don't exist or that people won't try in the future. But what implicit bias research is used for in courtrooms is really 
two things. So it's just to introduce as a sort of general proposition that an institution can have illegal bias operating in it, even though no one think no one is aware that that's what they're doing. Just as a general proposition. And interestingly, the other thing that implicit bias uh, research is being used for in courts is to do trainings with jurors and judges before they you know render a verdict. So that's how it plays out in actual legal cases. In the research, I have seen, for example research that measures implicit bias by region and says there's more implicit bias in this region than in this region, you know, as to a certain characteristic. What do you mean by region, by the way? The region of the country. But it doesn't map, you know, it does not, that research doesn't come out saying that, in fact, it's sometimes surprising that people in the South have more racial bias than people in the North. Not, it actually turns out not to be. I think people are trying to refine it to some extent, but I don't think that anyone's saying that those measures are precise or perfect. I guess what I was talking about wasn't so much that, I think in the hypothetical case, you know, would we, anyone ever think that we could get these measures to be so accurate or that we could have so much confidence in them that we could judge somebody in a courtroom? And I know we're not anywhere near that. That's what I'm trying to say. I don't think that's happening at this point. Actually going with this is that are these, so if I score a certain way on an implicit bias test, does that mean you sh- someone should be confident that I'm more or less uh, biased about, and again, racism or sexism or any of those types of things that are kind of plaguing our society? Does that mean I'm more or less you know, biased in those ways compared to somebody who had a different score? My understanding of this research, and again, I am not an expert, but that the range of scores is surprising in that people can have biases, a lot of bias against their own category. It's so these measurements are used more just to detect the presence of it. Though I, I guess it makes sense to say that if, if you have more trouble with the, whatever the association test, that probably means you're struggling against more. That's the crux of it. So maybe we should kind of talk a little bit about what those tests do. I have not seen anybody make that kind of argument, but that doesn't mean they're not. I'm sure somebody's making those arguments, but... I thought the idea was that if you associate a particular idea, so I I associate the color white with, you know, war or some other kind of thing, whatever those ideas are, if I'm slow in making that association compared to another association, that means I'm being defensive. So if I associate the the white with something bad or I associate purple with something good, well, I would be faster to make that association if associating purple than I would be associating white. And the argument is, is that I'm being defensive. I realize that I have this kind of negative association and so I'm slower to respond to that because I want to uh, kind of control it. Well, I don't understand it this way, but you probably understand it much better than I do. I think you don't realize Oh, no, that's the implicit part, but that's what slows you down. Right, but there, it is harder to connect up certain things than others. So let's imagine that I, if we were talking about, and I was slow at associating the word black with any kind of negative thing. And that's because the idea would be, right, that I know that this is on an explicit level. There's, there's something saying to me that I want to be more careful about this association or before I express it. But if I were really blatant, in terms of a racist, wouldn't that be that I wouldn't slow down? I mean, why would I want to interpret a slow response being one thing where a fast response is? Couldn't it be the other way around? 
Well, that I make that point in my paper, that the only way that implicit bias starts being shown is when you're trying not to be. But that if you're, you know, if you're comfortable with your biases, then you're just going to let them occur. So implicit bias, I think, at, already kind of assumes that one is trying to be a non-biased person. I think believe there's an argument, too, that just by the fact that you're sensitive to these things, that you're being defensive to those things, that's a positive thing. <laughs> Someone might, be, might argue that, well, they're showing this implicit bias, which often connotes a, a negative. Yeah, I say that in my article, that that's, it's actually a good sign. I guess it makes it, for me, very, very difficult to then, as a neuroscientist, if I wanted to try to understand the expression of implicit biases in various kinds of behaviors... Some cases it would be a good thing, some cases it would be a bad thing. It would seem to me that it would be very difficult for me then to specify not only what brain areas might be involved, because I don't know what the functions or what the processes are involved. Is it a defensive process or is it an aggressive process or what is it? I think the implicit bias research is intending to take the judgment away, to not say this is good, this is bad, but just to say this is. And how can we play with all of these different kinds of biases, like what interventions make them go, you know, become a little less prominent. If you're saying that there's no value judgment in this. I mean, it is maybe for some people, but that I don't think that's the main point of the work. But if we use the word bias, is that's, you're saying that's a neutral concept? Bias means irrational, is, is something that is where the brain is doing something that does not produce optimal outcomes. That's why you were talking about the delayed discounting is a bias. The whole idea of irrational, that's a term that's value-laden. And then bias is another that's value-laden. And so uh, these are things that you say someone has an implicit bias. That I'm not sure how you can say that that's not a concept that, that isn't related to the value that people place on things. So because I unfortunately went to Yale Law School, which at the time was just a haven of law and economics thinking. <laughs> I've been trained, <laughs> trained to say, think in a certain way about things where, you know, that's sort of value neutral. And I see what you're saying, that people are sort of blending this, this terrible moral wrong. And then they're sort of mushing that up with implicit bias research and saying, this is a terrible moral wrong. And of course, the label racism is to call someone a racist is to call them something very terrible. And people do use that politically against others and all of that kind of stuff. And so in the cultural communication, that is definitely happening, definitely happening. But the research itself, I don't think is intended to be, you know, the, the point is to go away from saying there are racists in this world and we should hate them. And instead say all of us, no matter what our identity category, no matter what our political beliefs and our value commitments, we all, our brains do this weird glitchy stuff. And that, that those glitches cause outcomes that are suboptimal. And so if we try to unglitch some of that, that might make a little improvement. You know, there, and there, there's so much other stuff, all the structural stuff, the institutional stuff, the historical stuff, the disadvantage that comes from all kinds of places. Like there's a lot more going on than just this. But this one thing maybe is something that could get more attention and, and lead to some improvements if we don't point fingers and call people 
horrible names. So I, I think that this is a great example of trying to fill gaps or build bridges because, I, I mean, sometimes just the language we use doesn't convey to people outside the, a particular area what is actually being, what the actual meaning is. Yeah, I look at both irrational and bias as being terms which are negative. But what you're talking about is this is a label for a process that is not negative necessarily. It's just a process. And uh, we need to understand that process. So, yeah, I, I think this is uh, it's one of those cases where I certainly understand where you're coming from better than I did before. And vice versa. I learned a lot by talking to you about this, and I'm sure I will continue to learn a lot. So let me throw something at you. And I, I mentioned this once before as well, and just to get your response to it. So I think I, I mentioned to you before that quite often what neuroscientists will do, and I don't want claim to be speaking for every single neuroscientist, but I think that there are a number of folks who approach our, the brain and the things that we study from a, what you might call a mechanistic perspective. And the mechanism is basically the brain is kind of a machine. And what we want to know is how, what the parts of the machine are and how they're connected together and how they work and what goes wrong with the machine when they're not working and are there ways that we can repair those problems. In a lot of ways, people don't want to look at themselves. As I mentioned before, we can pretty hard to find things that, that people do that are not associated with the brain. And so this is kind of making folks uh, machine-like. And I guess I just want to know if this is the approach, right? We're trying to look at this uh, as a mechanistic, deterministic model that we can try to, un again, understand how the parts are going together, what they are, how they work together to produce particular outcomes, which should give us an opportunity to then maybe repair the machine when it breaks down. We'll have a better idea. What do you think about that concept? Well, that's an area in which science and culture are just so separated. And certainly in law, the whole idea of moral responsibility for wrong, which all comes from the idea that humans are not machines and they have free will and they can make decisions and therefore should suffer the consequences of decisions that were you know, harmful. I just see them as two different paradigms. The machine paradigm can be useful sometimes in some ways. So I'm all for neuroscientists continuing to go somewhere with that machine paradigm, which is a metaphor really, and to see what where that all comes out. But not to say that that means, like in Robert Sapolsky's book, which, you know, I read and thought was very interesting, you know, he has a chapter on how ridiculous the, uh, the concept of moral wrong and criminal law is. And I want to say to him, but that's just a cultural practice. That doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that the work that what scientists understand is about the predeterminants of, of human conduct it doesn't mean that stuff's not true. It just means that for the purpose of judging moral culpability in a courtroom, in a legal system with a certain legal culture, it's not going to matter, except for in some you know extreme cases, it's not going to matter whether it, your conduct can be biologically explained. It still is, you are still going to be held responsible in many situations. So I'm okay with it, with it there just being two worldviews and borrowing from each other to the extent that it's helpful. I don't know. What do you think? So I know that when we look at machines, you know, if, you know, if our car crashes into something, we don't basically hold the car morally responsible, right? We try to find out 
well, maybe we'll hold the driver morally responsible, but maybe, uh, you know, the brakes failed or something went wrong with the steering or something like that. And so we look at how the machine works to explain maladaptive behavior on the part of machines. You're right. It's just an assumption uh, that people behave that way, but it's also an assumption that people are, you know, can express themselves freely and they have, they're not subject to the machine-like principles or controls. I think that thing is, is what strategy and what are your goals, of course, but what strategy will help explain behavior better? And will also, that, that's from the neuroscience perspective. I understand that it's not necessarily the case that all aspects of society want to try to explain behavior better. Sometimes, as you say, there's, there's retribution or a punishment or, you know, paying the consequences for your behavior, which may not be involved with the explanation of it. I think at the at present, as a scientist, I can't really say that you know my subject matter uh, can vary freely, because if that's the case, every time that I do an experiment where you know I get a result that is unexpected or may not be uh, what uh, fits with other data, I can't say well the subject matter, the phenomenon I'm studying is varying its you know free will, and so those are things that I think are going to be difficult to breach that gap. And I'm wondering at what level. So, for example, if I were able to identify certain areas of the brain, uh, so we expose somebody in an environment to a particular kind of chemical, and that chemical produces a change in the brain that relates, promotes uh, criminal behavior. At what sense do we then say, well, this is a machine and we don't hold the machine uh, responsible versus this is a human being, we definitely do hold the person responsible. It seems to be a t difficult question for both of us. I agree. But I do think that sometimes neuroscience is really important, like in um, cases where criminal defendants have been horribly abused as children and seem to really have damaged brains where it is, even under existing standards of legal culpability, it, it is unjust to hold that person responsible for their conduct. There are sort of situations where introducing neuroscience leads to better outcomes in, in criminal cases. So I can speak in a hypothetical, right? And, and then again, this is hypothetical. We're not anywhere near this. Let's imagine that, again, it's not so much that you've identified how people's brains have changed when they've been associated with abuse, because obviously many people who have been associated with abuse a function, are really resilient. In other words, people can be really resilient and they recover from these things and uh, lead extremely productive lives. So, but in some cases, that uh, experience is thought to change the brain, although it's not clear how. And uh, legally, they can be uh, resolved, uh, absolved of responsibility. So let's imagine, though, that I was able to, the hypothetical here is, let's imagine that I was able to determine what part of the brain was changing in those folks who were, had those horrible experiences and then engaged in criminal behavior. And let's imagine then that I was also able to see that same area of the brain change in people who haven't had those experiences. Now, would that brain change? I mean, again, it's hypothetical. Right now, we're not relying on uh, sympathy or we're just simply saying, here's how the brain works, and when, it's, does, when, when this part fails, this is what you get. Would that kind of knowledge really change the legal system, do you think? Or would it not? Well, I think it would only... Yeah, it does totally make sense, but it, it seems to me it only comes up in the cases where someone's using it as a defense so that they have actually committed a crime. 
I think that there's some cases where there's a criminal defendant and their the brain scans showed that there were these major parts of the brain that had deteriorated. And I think the defense was successful in saying that the, this person wasn't morally responsible for their conduct because their brain had so, you know, had such visible damage. So I think in a, in a merciful and just legal system, something like that should matter. I appreciate that, but that's an obvious case, right? So the, the case would be that there are people who commit acts and have biases and so on that you right now we're not able to identify any kind of brain abnormality with. And one of the goals you might expect would happen with neuroscience is the ability to understand how brain changes produce particular kinds of behaviors in particular, that's going to advance. And as that advances, it seems the notion of personal responsibility becomes more hazy again. Maybe a little bit less hazy, but I don't think anybody's going to, it's not like that Tom Cruise movie, I forget what the name of it was, where you you were convicted of a crime before you even committed it. I don't think that will ever happen. I think of it like there's when um, genes change and it's more likely you're going to get cancer, but not everybody with a genetic change gets cancer. But if that person gets cancer, then you can look back and say it was because of the genetic change. Probably that's going to be more true, as you're saying, in cases in which certain brain abnormalities are understood to cause certain tendencies. Like your work that I learned so much from, the idea that if you damage your brain with too much Western diet, then your impulse control, your ability to inhibit eating is damaged. So then when we blame people for being overweight and we say, you you know, you don't have any willpower and why don't you just stop eating or whatever, but your work shows that the problem is they, they can't, people can't because they are, their brains are literally damaged by the diet that they've consumed. And so- I'm sure that there'll be more understanding, but I think that's all towards understanding people better. That's an interesting thing because I think in neuroscience, a lot of psychology as well, that whole notion that that people become obese because they lack willpower is is not a notion that people put home. It doesn't explain anything. Again, we we look at, there are brain changes going on, not just the kinds of changes I'm talking about. There's plenty of people looking at other areas of the brain as well. The idea is, is that there are brain changes which are certainly making it more difficult for folks to with not be enticed by the foods and, and so on in their environment. And some people are able to overcome that, and we don't necessarily understand how that is. Other people are more susceptible to that. But the whole point is, is that we're not going to talk about it in terms of some kind of individual characteristic as a moral judgment, although this is still the number one, most people in the the world, our country for sure, think that it's the personal responsibility. It's an individual kind of flaw that uh, allows people to gain too much weight. That's kind of uh, the, what's called traditional rationalism. I think the legal system's based on that and science has been moving away from it. But wouldn't it be great if there were discoveries made by you and others that helped fix that flaw in the brain and made it easier for people. That's right. That's what we're trying. I mean, we're not the only people working on this problem, but that's what we're trying to do in our lab is we have some idea of how the brain is being affected by these diets, what pathophysiologies are being occurred, are occurring, and then the idea is to how can we intervene to prevent those. 
But that gets back to that whole notion that it's a brain change and the machine is changing. The, the mechanism is, is at fault. And so overeating, I mean, that's just one type of behavior. There's really no reason to think that other types of behavior operate maybe on different brain mechanisms, but nonetheless, it's still mechanistic. I think, right, that we can do a lot if, for example, we can get agreed upon. People can identify, they define the terms, define the concepts, define the problem well, and they can identify it with a process that would give us some kind of clue where to look in the brain. That would be very helpful in terms of neuroscientists getting together with people who are just interested in trying to help human behavior reduce a threat to the quality of life. That would be very helpful for us to get together to solve the problems. Susan and I have discussed our podcast, and we're going to have a little epilogue. And part of the reason we have an epilogue is we found it quite interesting that in some of our conversations, well, our different perspectives really came through. And so um, I think we'd like to talk a little bit about some of those differences that we spotted and maybe uh, just clarify for both ourselves and the audience what we were thinking on, on some of these segments. Susan, do you have any comment? Yeah. So you pointed out after the episode was produced and we were listening to it, that there's a certain part of our conversation where we seem to be talking across each other. And we went back and listened and realized that was true. And then just sort of trying to think about why that was, you were talking about how to prove or measure the degree of implicit bias. And I was saying that I thought that's not how implicit bias testing was being used right now. And I was assuming when you were talking about proof that you were talking about how you would use this kind of information as evidence in a court case, because I'm a lawyer. (laughs) And that wasn't at all what you were asking about. So why don't you mention what you were asking about? So one of the things that we, the reason we're having this podcast is because we do have different languages and different cultures, and sometimes the same words have different meanings. And in this case, I think the word evidence was where we maybe started talking past each other. And when I mentioned evidence, it certainly makes sense to me that you being a lawyer, you would think about evidence produced in, in a courtroom. Evidence in neuroscience means something else, and that is basically, on a, you know, you do an experiment and you get evidence for a particular phenomenon. And so when I was talking about evidence with respect to implicit bias, I was wondering how good is the evidence that these tests that measure implicit bias are really measuring what they say. They really are measuring some source of bias. And I wasn't really talking about evidence in the courtroom. So I, th- I think that's where we had some slippage in our, in our conversation today. Yeah. And I thought that was really, that's that's kind of fun and interesting to notice. So to me, I was saying, why does it matter how much bias one is measuring? And, and you're pointing out, well, for purposes of scientific inquiry, you would need to have some sort of way to measure. Yes. So part of the thing is also is, you know, the more we know and the better something is defined, uh, the better chance we have to understand how the brain is functioning up with that construct. So if we're talking about implicit bias or any other kind of psychological function, uh, the extent that we can define the function really well gives us a better chance of understanding the neural circuitry that is involved in underlying that function. And so with implicit bias, one of the things I was trying to get at was, well, first off, it's unconscious. And, you know, unconscious is one of those terms that's loaded. And I think it's also a term that would mean something different to people in neuroscience relative to maybe people in psychology relative to people in other fields. For me, it's just the low conscious awareness. And there's a lot of things like that. 
And if we start talking about implicit bias as being an unconscious phenomenon, then the next question is, well, what kinds of things funnel into implicit bias? Does anger funnel into it? And does insecurity funnel into it? And does narcissism or whatever kinds of things that might impact it? And if that's the case, could they all be unconscious too? Which then really makes things very difficult to try to tie to any brain activity or area of the brain. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's such an interesting point too, because to me, it didn't really matter what emotions were involved, but you're pointing out that in order to fully explain, you do need to sort of understand how this phenomenon is occurring in the brain. Yeah. So I think the whole idea of explanation, our two fields really use that term differently as well. And so in terms of explaining how someone does something, you don't necessarily have to talk about what the brain's doing, right? And that's fine. Nobody really, very few people except neuroscientists would talk about that. But of course, neuroscientists, that's what our focus would be. And quite frankly, a lot of times, if you can identify a phenomenon or you can identify a construct or some some kind of idea and you can define it very carefully, that helps us try to understand that from the perspective of the functioning and the circuitry of the brain and how it may be producing a particular kind of outcome. I've noticed in the literature I've read on implicit bias, there's some work done on aversion or repulsion or this idea that, you know, somebody who's considered the other is somehow something you want to stay away from. And is that helpful or is it too complicated of a concept? So I think it gets, in some ways, you know, we talked a bit about courses of law, and I think it would be very interesting if we could identify an area of the brain where if it was, uh, how should I say, malfunctioning, that it could produce criminal behavior, that kind of thing. And there are some areas, and there have been court cases with respect to, I shouldn't say court cases, sometimes court cases, but cases where people have committed terrible accidents, found later that they've had brain tumors in particular areas. Those areas seem to be involved with sometimes aggressive behavior, sometimes fear, sometimes rage. But it is the case that not every time that someone commits a violent act or aggressive act that those brain areas are malfunctioning. I think I mentioned to you about what's called the septal rat. You can damage an area of a rat's brain and what you can create is an extremely aggressive animal. An animal will kind of leap out of the cage at you and try to attack you again. But it's an interesting phenomenon, but how it relates to what humans, and let's face it, humans are much more complicated. Their histories are much more complicated. And clearly it's we haven't identified every kind of a malfunction in the brain that could be producing or any function in the brain that could produce these these kinds of behaviors that are that are so aggressive. So yeah, there are definitely substrates that produce uh, aggressive behaviors, but we've got a long way to go to figure out how those substrates interact in any one case for humans. That's really fascinating. And it points to where maybe some of this research in, a, in the very long-term future might might end up. Yeah, yeah, I, I do think there are some interesting things out there. But, you know, one of the things that neuroscientists can really do is we can do things like, well, neuroscientists can convert thoughts into speech, right? So I don't know if you were aware of this, but if uh, people who have been able to uh, lack speech, 
now can think and it can be displayed on a computer screen, at least the rudimentary thoughts. And people haven't been able to see, can can now see based on chips that are produced, put in their occipital lobe and, or other parts of the visual circuit. These are tremendous advances, but they're not like a, how should I say, an emotion. Emotion is, can be very complicated. A visual circuit, perhaps an expression circuit with respect to speech, those are more confined, they're easier to understand. They're, they involve less brain area, and so it makes it easier for us to get. I think that over time, we're going to learn more and more, and I think that perhaps we'll be able to help with problems that are more complex in the future. Well, I think that's a great note to end on. Okay. <laughs> Well, that's it for this podcast episode. Thanks very much for listening. And as always, we welcome your feedback at neuroscience.policy at american.edu. We hope you'll join us again for our next episode. And do let us know if there's anything in particular you'd like to hear.